Thank you, Peter. Sorry about that complete distraction. Today is uh, Palm Sunday, and today week is uh, Resurrection Day. And as I said this morning, I, I want to kind of top and tail Holy Week by looking at some Easter people, some key groups and, and individuals who played a vital role in, in the unfolding drama. And tonight I want to consider three in addition to Jesus. And the three I want to consider are a manipulated crowd, a crowd pleaser, and then a total thug who couldn't believe his luck. And I want to think about their association with Jesus and Jesus' association with them, but I also want to reflect on our connection with these three and, and how we, how you and I can relate to them. And, and we find their story or, or a version of it in Mark's gospel, chapter 15. And so if you have a Bible, can I invite you to go there with me? It's page 1022 in the, the Red Pew Bibles. Earlier down at Fane Street, we looked at some of the events that took place on that first Palm Sunday and on the day after that, Holy Monday. This evening in, in Mark 15, we're dealing with what happened very, very early in the morning, shortly after sunrise on the first so-called Good Friday. Just a quick bit of background before we read it. As far as the, the Jewish authorities were concerned, by this stage, they were absolutely convinced that Jesus deserved to die. That fact had been established overnight. And in front of chief priests and elders of the law and the whole Sanhedrin, Jesus had vocally, verbally, openly confessed to being the Messiah. And that lit a touch paper. The high priest, on hearing this, it says, ripped his clothes. And as a result of what Jesus had said, he was condemned to death by the Jewish leaders. But there was a slight problem. They had no legal right to kill him no right to execute anyone, and so they needed the Roman authorities to do their dirty work and to sanction Jesus' death. But there was a problem with that, because Jesus' claim to be Messiah was a religious issue. It was of no real interest to the state. And so if the Jewish leaders were going to get Jesus killed by the Romans, they needed to twist the charge in order to get them on board and to get them involved. And so what they did was they charged Jesus with claiming to be a king. And that was a serious offense in Roman eyes. That meant that Jesus was no longer just a religious problem, he was a political threat. He was potentially guilty of a crime against the sovereign power of Rome. And so they sat up and took notice. So here's what it says in verse 1. Very early in the morning, as I say, this is around sunrise, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, the whole Sanhedrin who had been meeting during the night, they made their plans. So they bound Jesus. They led him away and they handed him over to Pilate. And then here was what Pilate asked. Are you the king of the Jews? 
And so the trial begins. It's now up and running, and so there is a very real chance and possibility that Jesus will be killed. So let's read what happens next. Please, if you don't mind, let's stand together for the public reading of God's Word. Mark 15, from verse 2 to verse 15. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things, so again Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of, but Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested, and a man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas and said, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them, crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Grab a seat. And what I want to do now is I want us to watch a brief visualization of what happened. It's a scene from the Passion of the Christ and so, those of you who know this film will know that this will be in Latin. Crowds can be very fickle and easily swayed, even manipulated. And it seems that the crowd that day were, were no different to many crowds, no exception how big the crowd was and, and who exactly was in the crowd, well, that's just guesswork. There might even have been some people who only five days earlier gave Jesus the red carpet treatment. But now, the only deafening shout of this crowd is one baying for his blood. Crucify him. Crucify him. Everyone in this crowd seems to be against Jesus. There, there are no alternative voices. No voices of support. Why? Well, one thing's for sure, this Jesus is not their king. He's not their Messiah. He's not the one this crowd were expecting or had hoped for. They were expecting some sort of freedom fighter, someone who was going to lead a military revolution, someone who was going to flex his muscles and sort out the Roman authorities in no uncertain terms once and for all. But this Jesus, this Jesus appeared to be a defeated, pathetic figure. Someone who had chosen the path of suffering and seemed to be walking head and heart long towards death and the cross this was no savior. This Jesus was a disappointment. People were disillusioned by him. 
Any, any thoughts or rumors of him being the one had come to nothing? They had come to this. And therefore, there was, there was no one, or there appeared to be no one in that crowd who was prepared to speak up and speak out for Jesus. The general consensus was, look, let's just get rid of him. Let's get rid of another self-confessed Messiah who turns out to be inactive and powerless when it really matters. He, he hardly even speaks. And so with one voice, the crowd cry, crucify him. Crucify him. But a critical aspect of, of these moments was the presence in that crowd of a strong vocal contingent people who, who sounded and seemed so confident, chief priests who had authority, who had influence, who exerted pressure, who stirred up the crowd, as it says in verse 11. And therefore, everyone did what these strong voices told them to do. No one wanted to upset them. No one wanted to go against them. And as I thought about this during the week, it struck me that there may be elements here of this crowd on that day that many people in our day, even some of us, can easily identify with because it's so easy to be carried along by a crowd. Even if you, even if you don't agree with the masses, it can be incredibly difficult and daunting to be a different or an alternative voice. You can feel if, that if you speak up and you speak out for Jesus that you're going to be left vulnerable and exposed. And so you just join in. You blend in. You go with the flow. To speak up and out for Jesus in a crowd of work colleagues or friends or family can very, be very intimidating. And, and so you, you merge in or, or at worst, you, you kind of stay quiet. You keep your head down. But whenever the crowd includes strong, confident voices who are dead set against Jesus, whenever there are people who ridicule him and write him off, and whenever they're the sort of people who shout loudly and they rarely let up, then you do sometimes cave in and you buy into their rhetoric. And before you know it, you're simply doing or you're saying what everybody else says. And this, and probably a whole lot more, is what was going on in that day at sunrise on the first Good Friday morning amongst this crowd. And eventually, this crowd gets their way, as crowds often do. A manipulated crowd played a huge part during that first Holy Week. And then we turn to the second character, the ultimate crowd pleaser, Pilate, Roman governor, didn't know what to do with Jesus, didn't know what to do with his answers to certain questions, and definitely didn't know what to do with his silence in response to other questions. Now, there is a couple of things or a couple of interesting aspects of Mark's record of events, which at one level puts Pilate in reasonably good light. For a start, it says in verse 5 that Pilate was amazed by Jesus. That's a positive thing, is it not? 
Plus, according to verse 10, Pilate could see through the chief priests. He knew that it was out of self-interest that they had handed him over or handed Jesus over to him. But Pilate wasn't taken in by them. Elsewhere in the Gospels, we know that actually Pilate thought Jesus was innocent. No basis of charge against him. But despite all that, no matter how good a light we put him in, Pilate was caught in a tight spot between a rock and a hard place. The Sanhedrin were in uproar, and because Jesus had appeared to answer positively when asked, was he a king? Pilate knew Rome's going to be breathing down my neck. Plus, I'm faced with this unsettled, manipulated crowd who seem to be getting more and more agitated by the minute. And so then Pilate has an idea. It's a great thought that could sort or kind of get him out of this situation, and it concerned a custom at Passover, this custom of granting amnesty to a prisoner of the people's choice. And so some rebel who's lying in prison is mentioned by name. And Pilate asks the crowd if they want Jesus released. Notice he doesn't even say in verse 9, or Barabbas. He just says, did you want me to release Jesus? But the crowd opt for this convicted rebel. And and whenever Pilate asks them, well, well, what should I do with Jesus? Because still Pilate has no clue. Then the crowd shout, crucify him. And whenever Pilate says, okay, look, you've got to confirm for me, what crime has he committed? And at that point, the crowd just shout even louder, crucify him, crucify him. And then we read these sad and tragic words, wanting to satisfy the crowd. Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and had, you see, Pilate was the ultimate crowd pleaser. And although in many ways it's hard to see how we, any of us sitting here, could could identify with him. I want to suggest that there are certain aspects of his behavior and his attitude that we can relate to. In fact, many people today are more like Pilate than they care to say or admit. Think about it. Like Pilate, there are lots of people who, who see no harm in Jesus, but, but they see nothing else. They're willing to accept, yes, he may be the king of the Jews, but he's certainly not the king of kings. He may be relevant to some people, but he's not relevant to all people. Or there's also people like Pilate who might be intrigued by Jesus. There are many people in our culture and context today who might even be amazed by Jesus or impressed by what he did and said, but they aren't prepared to take that any further. They're not prepared to risk anything for this Jesus. They're certainly not prepared to surrender to him. And then there's also some people like Pilate, and I can relate to this who are scared of doing the right thing in case it upsets someone. Scared of doing the right thing in case it upsets someone. There are times whenever we know what we should do, and and yet because we're worried about how someone else is going to react, what someone else is going to think, I bottle it. 
I don't follow through because I want to be a crowd. I want to be a people pleaser. Sometimes rather than be a God pleaser. And Pilate was, yes, a unique character, but it's not difficult to see how, in a sense, the spirit of Pilate lives on. Scared to do the right thing in case someone else gets upset. And then you come to our final character who doesn't say a word in the whole drama, Barabbas, a complete thug who can't believe his luck. And even before we think of him a little further, let me make it clear that every single one of us can and should identify with him. We mightn't exactly use that language, complete thugs who don't believe their luck. But we're all guilty sinners because of Jesus who can't believe our freedom. And Barabbas was a, a convicted criminal. He's on death row. We don't know a lot about him. We, we know that his name means son of the father, bar, son, Abba, father, son of a father, son of the father. Mark tells us in verse 7 that he was in prison with rebels who had committed murder in the uprising. So he was some kind of freedom fighter and killer who, along with other insurrectionists, had been vocal and vicious opponents of Rome. And so Barabbas is waiting, awaiting execution, crucifixion, when all of a sudden he's handed a get-out-of-jail card for free. He's guilty. There's no doubt about that. But for some reason, another person is about to take the hit instead of him. Barabbas, the convicted murderer, is released. He's set free. And in his place, the innocent Jesus, who's also known as the Son of the Father, which is ironic, is condemned to death. Barabbas had taken someone's life, many lives. Barabbas deserves to be punished, but all of a sudden, the guilty one switches places with the innocent one, and the guilty one finds freedom. And I know you can see where I'm going with this, because whatever else is happening in these dramatic moments, and they are dramatic, but whatever else is happening here, there is, with hindsight and insight, a graphic connection between this hood and me. See, as Jesus takes the place of a condemned man, as Jesus accepts the punishment that Barabbas deserved, as Barabbas finds his life restored, because Jesus is led away to be flogged and crucified in his place, there's just this striking connection as they're not screaming at us from the pages of Scripture. We are Barabbas. All humanity is Barabbas. We're all guilty. Why are we all guilty? Because we've all sinned. We've all done wrong. 
And the kickback, the payback, the wages of sin, if you like, is death. Long-term spiritual death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And that gift, that gift is Jesus. And so because God so loved the world, he gave Jesus. And on that cross on Good Friday, Jesus didn't just take the place of a murderous rebel, Barabbas, although he did that. He also took the place of all guilty human beings who have rebelled against God. And not because any of us deserve it, just as Barabbas didn't deserve to be released and find freedom, but purely because of grace. Purely because of grace. God's amazing grace that we've been singing about, that Peter has been leading us in thinking about. God's amazing grace that provides for our freedom and our forgiveness and our release and our hope and our eternal life and our certain future. We don't deserve it, but because Jesus stepped in, because he took our place, he died for us, then the freedom, the forgiveness, the release, the hope, the eternal life, the certain future is ours to know, to experience, to embrace. And therefore, in a very real sense, although I say we may choke at the language, but in a very real sense, we are all thugs who can't believe our luck. We sometimes sing that song, Amazing Love, and, and hear the lyrics, My Lord, what love is this that pays so dearly that I, that I, the guilty one, that I get to go free? Amazing love, what sacrifice the Son of God given for me. My debt he pays. My debt he dies. That I might live. You see, Barabbas had no idea what was going on that Friday morning in terms of God's love and the bigger picture and the bigger story that he was part of. But all he was aware of was that someone called Jesus paid his debt died in his place so that he could live. Barabbas knew that despite being guilty, he had been found guilty, he was on death row, he had been sentenced, but despite that, he was set free because someone else headed for crucifixion instead of him. And as we close tonight, and as we walk our way through another Holy Week, where hopefully we will read and we will reread the stories of various Easter people, I hope and pray we can see and we will see the connections with the crowd, manipulated at times by strong voices. We'll see connections with the crowd, pleasers, scared, of doing the right thing in case it upsets someone else. Or we'll see the connection with Barabbas, the guilty one, who incredibly is allowed to go free because of Jesus. But more than anything, 
I hope and pray we'll see the connection between us and Jesus. And we'll join in the first of our final two songs with renewed gratitude and intention. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for the price that you paid, bearing all my sin, my shame. You came in love and gave amazing grace. I am like Bravos, unworthy, undeserving, a complete thug who's rebelled against God. And yet because of Jesus, I cannot believe my luck. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the cross.